0: Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Two years since the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan, is it time to talk to the hardline Islamist group who British troops fought across two decades? I do
1: believe we should have a
2: diplomatic presence on the ground in Kabul. The aim of being there would be to give help
0: to the Afghan people. Former British Ambassador Sir Nicholas Kaye is advocating a limited re-engagement, as is the Chairman of the Commons Defence Committee. But some of his colleagues are furious about a video that he posted from Helmand which described Afghanistan as transformed. So what's the reality?
3: majority of people
4: do not have enough food to eat. In terms of common peace, the absence of war, that is one of the common perceptions of a huge improvement.
1: Minorities like Hazaras, Shias and our sick people, it is not safe. And Afghan women and girls don't have security in Afghanistan.
0: And what about the original reason that British troops went to Afghanistan? terrorism and our own security. Mike will help us assess the current threat. We will also talk to a former Afghan diplomat and a former British military attache for their thoughts on what help Britain could and should give the country.
4: One message the Afghan people really give us so forcefully and strongly is, please don't abandon us.
0: ZITREP with James
2: Hurst and Professor Michael Clarke.
0: like uh, tobias elwood's video from afghanistan which he has since deleted from twitter i mean it talked about vastly improved security improved energy infrastructure and he said it was time to stop shouting from afar about the bad things and and, and re-engage it, you know it, it seemed like an attempt at, uh, at making some grown-up points it misfired spectacularly didn't it you know, his underlying message
5: was not a bad one, but the tone of the whole thing, the tone of the video, gave a sense that it was almost directed by the Taliban. It seemed so one-sided because he didn't sort of look at, at the I mean, economic chaos or the lack of any social welfare, the, the inability of the Taliban to manage very much. Of course, the security is better because the Taliban themselves are not creating the civil war and narcotics are under some control because the Taliban do control those things as they always have had great influence with them. And the, the judgment he made in creating that video, I think, was very peculiar and has not done his own reputation a lot of good, I'm afraid, even though I think he, he certainly had the right intentions when he, when he went to Afghanistan to do a fact-finding mission of his own.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's now facing a no-confidence motion as the, the chair of the Commons Defence Committee. You know, that won't happen until September when uh, when Parliament returns. But uh, Mr Elwood said again this week, stressing that he was talking in a personal capacity, he said, quote, We don't want to be reminded of our failures, nor the fact that we handed the nation to the very insurgents that we went in defeat. And the result, he says, is... Many of us do not want to confront the toughest questions on Afghanistan. You know, on that point, is he right? Are we are we failing to confront tough questions?
5: Yes, we are, because Afghanistan's in the rearview mirror. We've all got something bigger to worry about now, which is the Ukraine war and the security of Europe problem. And that's exactly the way it is in the United States. Nobody wants to talk about Afghanistan because it's shameful. It's a strategic failure. And we have a more important and immediate national security problem in front of us. And that goes for the US
0: as well as the United Kingdom. Well, let's discuss those tough questions on Afghanistan a bit further. With us, Colonel Simon Diggins, former officer of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. His army service included two years as Britain's military attaché to Afghanistan, based in Kabul from 2008 to 2010. And Nazifa Haqbal, who's a former Afghan diplomat. She worked as head of consulate department, as well as head of human rights and women's rights at the Afghan Embassy in London. Uh, Nazifa Simon, welcome to you both. Uh, Nazifa, before we really dig into the possible answers. Let's start with what you think are the tough questions about Afghanistan that the UK and its allies need to address right now.
3: I think it's very important to understand Afghanistan very well from Afghan perspective. And I have, by observing the situation from the ground, and by talking to many Afghans, I have pointed out that there are four Different tough questions that uh, I think we have to address, it. and the first one that I can we can see that a rapid radicalization is happening by the Taliban. And preventing that, it's very important because this will lead to a catastrophe. And I can already see that this spillover is happening with the regional countries, TTP's activity and uh, Iran and Taliban's tension. Uh, and then uh, besides a radicalization of the society, this is happening through two um, very strategic and ideological ways. One is erasure of women from all aspects of life from the society. 86 edicts has been just issued to restrict your rights. And the second way that uh, this radicalization is happening through Islamic uh, curriculum, the schools and, uh, and, and universities just to promote Taliban kind of ideologies. And uh, this is the place that we have to fight. And the other uh, important aspect which is happening, gender apartheid is happening. And this has to stop And there are uh, many mechanisms that uh, UK is a country that has led many international initiatives to restore or to promote world peace. This can be done by the UK leadership along with other international allies.
0: Well, well, we'll look at some of those mechanisms in a while. But uh, Simon Diggins, I mean, what do you think the big questions are? It's obviously going to be a, a big concern to the UK to to hear about radicalisation happening in Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I think so. And, and But I, I, I absolutely would support what Nazif said, that, that what we really need to do is ensure that we listen very much to the people of Afghanistan. That said, uh, I also agree with um, Professor Mike that what we are looking for is you know what's the effect been on how people judge us and how people look at us. Uh, and you rightly highlight in your opening piece the effect on, on what's happened, in, in, in for example, in, in Ukraine, where I think the, the strategic fair of the West in August 21, I can't say gave a green light to Putin, but certainly indicated to him that we were... Uh, We're not serious about long-term commitment. I'd also add to that, I think what's been going on in West Africa is also linked to that through the the, the rise of the Wagen Group. In other words, the sense that the West will not defend what it sees as its interests. So therefore, what would our interest be in Afghanistan? I think it's supporting a country to develop peacefully, democratically, and for the kind of norms that we regard as normal in terms of human rights, particularly women's rights. Now that, at the moment, is fundamentally lost as a moral injury to us which, uh, and to
0: the people of Afghanistan, which I think we need, to, we need to acknowledge. There is a lot to talk about, but let us get a picture of life in Afghanistan right now from someone who knows the country well. Dr. Yankola's research on the impact of interventions focuses heavily on Afghanistan. He is in contact day by day with his local research team, and he has visited regularly for two decades. He was last in Afghanistan in, December.
4: in terms of common peace, in terms of the absence of war uh, and the absence of the risks which are associated with whatever kind of collective violence is happening, that has dramatically um, decreased. And that is not not only like in formal numbers, but it's really also the perception, no matter what the people think of the Taliban, that is one of the common perceptions of, an, of a huge improvement. Having said that, I mean, many people, of course, are aware of the fact that uh, a good deal of the violence that happened under the republic emanated from the Taliban and other insurgency movements themselves. And I have to, and that is really something that needs to be underlined, there are certain groups, of course, of people for which this is not the case. Urban women educated and before engaged in NGO work or work with the former government, they clearly have a different opinion, not only for their human security, but also physical security in terms of uh, freedom of movement that is very much infringed and and increased. Then there are some minorities, uh, there are some people who have been uh, engaged or working for parts of the uh, former government of the former state that is being targeted by the Taliban and discriminated against. So they have a different opinion here. But generally, yes, the impression is correct. Physical collective violence, warlike violence has, of course, dramatically
0: reduced Just for a moment, let's look at your own experience. Were you able to move freely and and safely around Kabul?
4: Yeah, around Kabul, yes. And also, my next trip will also take me to the districts where some humanitarian development work is slowly ongoing again. Our local team, I mean, been working with them since 2005. Even for them, our movement in the later years of the republic in many districts was much more difficult and more risky than it is today. So today, they could visit those districts that were no-go areas or very difficult to negotiate in the later years of the republican now obviously they are they need their permissions with the new authorities what they are doing where they are going uh, beforehand uh, but then in terms of physical uh, security uh, has improved
0: what you're describing sounds like it might be might appear to us in the west as a more normal day-to-day life than say four or five years ago before the taliban returned
4: uh, yes, but, but with, of course, very significant trade-offs uh, in terms of uh, other, like political freedoms, and mm. I mean, even the fact that that our team are, uh, uh, you know, was not able to give you an interview, not only foreign MS media, also the. the Information space, of course, has, sh- has 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 been shrinking dramatically uh, in Afghanistan, access to information. And political freedoms, of course, are not there anymore. And then, of course, you have the huge uh, infringement on freedoms of very vast groups within the country, trade-offs in terms of livelihoods. You know, if you uh, violence, of course, is one thing. But then, of course, if you starve to death, it's... Uh, death. I, I was
0: going to ask, because, I mean, this was the huge problem in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the republic. What's the economy like now? Is it, as some have suggested starting to function again as a normal economy or not?
4: There are some aspects of the economy that are normalising, but of course there are huge challenges for day-to-day.
0: The, the bottom line is, are people able to buy food? Is the food there to be bought? Is it, And do they have the money to buy it?
4: Initially, just having the money that was a huge problem because the financial sector basically broke down or was frozen, and that is not completely solved yet. So, simply to have to have the cash is, is a challenge. Uh, then the whole the whole sector associated with the international intervention, which was which was absolutely huge, has broken away. So, salary jobs are much less now. For some some parts of the economy that have always been important, Afghanistan trade, for example, it's it's not as dramatic. Some things even improved. So, uh, no, generally, the poverty and standard of of living has dramatically decreased. Uh, Of course, one needs to look carefully for some segments of society. It's not the case, especially traders that are linked to the Taliban.
0: So, arguably, there is greater physical security for some the economy is, is starting to function a little better, but not for others. But as you've said throughout, there are huge trade-offs. Uh, what do you think the the mood of the Afghan people you know and work with toward the Taliban?
4: Well, the hope is basically that uh, the kind of um, common peace can be retained and people are willing to accept a limitation of political freedoms um, and so forth in return for that. But the major question here really is if this uh, highly ideologically motivated government that is still in the process of, of moving from an insurgency movement towards some kind of uh, established statehood, whether they can provide not only for security and their very specific understanding of justice, but whether they can deliver other governance services like uh, education of course medical services and well all, all, all these kind of other uh, governance issues that uh, the state should at least uh, provide the framework for in order for it to uh, to develop and evolve and that is of course all very much under question
0: afghanistan researcher dr young Kohler. Uh, nazifa uh, the picture that young paints of afghanistan how does that compare to what you know of life there now
3: I mean, what I can see is that it's important that we should picture this with pre-2021, where we have seen progress in terms of education, employment, participation of women in social and economic affairs. I mean, you cannot ignore 3 million girls were going to school in universities and there were women ministers, judges, legislators, and civil servants, and today we can see There is zero, and reports suggest that two-thirds of the population are facing hunger. More than three million children are suffering from acute malnourishment. So these are the the, the figures which is uh, very catastrophic, and I very much argue that absence of war, absence of attacks that were happening all by the Taliban, it doesn't equate is security Mm. so we have to look security in a very broad perspective Uh, so we should not ignore the tyrannical behavior of the Taliban.
0: Simon how does it feel to hear that picture of life in Afghanistan after everything that that you and tens of thousands of British servicemen and women put into uh, work in that country? Um, Frankly and honestly a little bit despairing um,
2: Nazifah is completely correct. An absence of war does not equal peace. I mean, I'm tempted to quote Marshall. You know, they made a desolation and called it peace. And I sense that's kind of where we are with that. But to hear the, the kind of oppression, you know, 50% of the population fundamentally have no human rights as we, as we accept them. We know that really we're, we're only one, one bad harvest away from a, from a humanitarian disaster in Afghanistan. So I think we need to be very, very careful of what looks like a sort of stable ceasefire and saying we, there is peace and therefore we're looking for, for, you know, the green shoots of development. We're a long way from that at the moment. And as you say, in terms of how we feel as, as former servicemen who's, who served over there, indeed there are so many servicemen there. I mean, I can, I can only speak for myself, I really can only speak for myself in this. Uh, just great sadness and great despair. I think anyone who served in Afghanistan for a period of time, you know, one of the most overwhelming emotions that people come away with them is a huge amount of affection. Affection for the country, you know admiration of its history, its past, its culture, uh, and because they served so often alongside Afghans, you know huge admiration and, and, and pleasure in, the, in their company and life. you know there were frustrations, of course there were, but actually, there's no soldier I know who served in Afghanistan who doesn't have strong emotions attached to
0: that, and we shouldn't forget that yes violence has reduced but there is still violence there is still terrorist presence in the country and and, and that contributes a big part to the violence Uh, mike i was looking at the the figures the latest un assessments are al-qaeda's got a presence of about 400 fighters isk which is essentially the afghan branch of daesh that has between one and three thousand fighters now uh, it might seem crass to do this but our mission always was British security. So put those figures in context for us. Do they represent a threat to the UK and its allies from Afghanistan?
5: yes <clears throat> they represent the same sort of threat that they did before because those are the groups that bear the west um, you know no goodwill whatsoever and will attack the west if they can the taliban were never interested in attacking western society they were only interested in what was happening in afghanistan so the taliban were not not our terrorist enemy our terrorist enemies are al qaeda of course and and the the intervention in afghanistan was on the basis that al- that uh, the taliban government had allowed al qaeda to establish a mini state and use it as a base to attack the west and that was what created 9 11. And you know, that argument that the government always tried to produce a, a sort of simple argument that would go on the tabloid press headline, and they said, you know, we're fighting in Afghanistan to keep terrorists off our streets. And they always had a problem getting the public to accept that, mainly because it wasn't true. Um, The fact is, we were in Afghanistan for a whole complex of different reasons connected with American policy. And there weren't bad reasons to be in Afghanistan at all. But there were complex reasons connected to, you know, the 9-11 attacks and the idea that the United States should not just be passive when there are forces out there in Asia and the Middle East who are trying to attack America. So let's do something about it. And that morphs into, well, you know, we've we've we have a responsibility to this country we've, we've you know as, as Colin Powell said if you break it you've got to fix it and so we ended up as it were c- caught in a, a very complex web of, of policy motivations which went far beyond the idea of stopping terrorists on our streets because the terrorists on our streets in the in the years after 2001 were all based in the in the Pakistan borderlands and then they were based in Sinai and then when they were based in uh, the Levant then they were based in Africa and so we ended up in this sort of rather incoherent strategy but the one thing we did know is that we had a duty to do something about Afghanistan society into which we had intervened as a result of 9-11.
0: Okay so the central question we are where we are is it time for the UK to re-engage with Afghanistan and its current regime however much we may dislike them and if so what form should that re-engagement take Well, before we get the views of our guests, I've been talking to an Afghan women's rights advocate who believes the UK should now... Urgently reopen its embassy in Kabul, but not to recognise the Taliban as a legitimate government. We're not sharing her real name or her location for security reasons. We know her as Amana, and she is in regular contact with many women who are still in Afghanistan.
1: Before the Taliban took over Afghanistan, they were fighting for many days, and we were listening of gunfires and bomb sounds and everything. And uh, in those days. Uh, we were talking with uh, our families that how was life in last period of Taliban. And we never could imagine that uh, we will experience all those horrific experiences again.
0: What have women who you know who are still in Afghanistan, what have they lost? How have their lives changed?
1: When they took power in the very first day, they claimed that they changed. Um, in my opinion, yes, uh, they changed, but they changed in their wars and the international community in uh, all countries. They cannot do anything uh, against them. They are gradually taking the rights from women. They are raising women from daily life. Today, we just can see that women are uh, looking for just having the permission to go out and meet their friends, having the permission to wear what they want.
0: One of the things Western politicians point to is there is less violence in Afghanistan. Fewer people are being killed. But do women in Afghanistan feel more secure now, given everything that's happened?
1: Today, in Afghanistan, the meaning of security changes from a person to another person. For Taliban and their supporters, Afghanistan is the most safe country, but for minorities like Hazaras, Shias and our sick people, it, it is not safe and they are continuously attacked. And for women... Yes, uh, there is no war and there is no fighting with women, but they don't have security. Security is not only uh, to hear sounds of gunfires or things like that, but when we lost our identity and they don't have rights, I believe that Afghan women and girls don't have security in Afghanistan.
0: Is there anything you think countries like the United States and Britain could do? To change life in Afghanistan today, to make it better,
1: um, I believe that countries like the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, some other Western countries uh, they can talk to Taliban. They desperately need to open, reopen their embassies in Kabul, not uh, to support. The Taliban to have more power, but put pressure on Taliban or on this regime to reopen the doors of schools and universities to women and girls to ascend by people of Afghanistan. I believe that people of Afghanistan want this kind of support that countries talk to this regime in a way that human's right and women's uh, right is in the centre of the talks.
0: Amina, an advocate for Afghan women. Uh, Nazifa and Simon, I'll, I'll ask you for your thoughts on re-engagement in, in a moment. But b- before that, Mike, uh, I mean, uh, Amana talks about putting pressure on the Taliban from, from the West. Could opening an embassy actually make any difference? Would it give us any further influence in Afghanistan?
5: It's not the most urgent thing in a way. Um, We we do need to engage. It's probably better to do it through the international organisations. And I mean, the European Union countries can do it through the EU, which we can't now do. So it's more difficult in that respect. Um, But an embassy itself, British embassy, might be a target, it might make things worse, it might not be a safe um, investment. And of course, it might require British service personnel inside the embassy to look after it. Um, So there's some tactical questions there. But I think whether an embassy is the right answer, I'm a bit doubtful about at the moment. But engagement through other organizations um, to feed ideas through and to be clear to the Taliban that we. We want to engage but we're not going to engage entirely on your terms we have to engage on the terms um, of the sort of things that uh, Nazifa was talking about you know what we what we know not just believe but what we know the people of Afghanistan seem to want Um, and I think we you know we can take a a harder line on on their behalf in engaging because my goodness the Taliban need outside support on the economic front if only that
0: um, in the next 12 months. So Nazifa, what do you think the way forward is and does it involve an embassy?
3: I would say that, you know, even this debate of reopening the embassy will be a big boost to the Taliban confidence and to their terrorist allies, including TTP and al-Qaeda. It shouldn't happen.
0: So what but- is the answer then? If, it, if we are to make a difference, if it's not opening an embassy, how do we influence the Taliban to, to change?
3: We have to realize that as the UN have reported and many other uh, uh, experts also believe that there will be very unlikely that the Taliban will change uh, on their ideology, on their practices. And we have uh, witnessed this in the past two years. But I would say that there are a lot of point of leverage that the UK can play. And uh, one of that is that uh, try to enable an environment where Afghan civil society, our political forces can gather together. And as we have already witnessing that in the past two years, not recognizing the Taliban has enabled that environment. They, they have come together to demand the restoration of their rights and freedom. And I think these voices should be supported. An alternative reality to the Taliban that can counter their radicalization, the threat that other regional countries are facing from uh, the Taliban. And uh, we should not give up uh, uh, on, on, on these hopes and these plans and these aspirations that should, whether sooner or later, replace um, the current status quo. Uh,
0: Simon, do you believe it is time for the UK to to open an embassy, to, to talk to the Taliban? I think it
2: is time for us to engage um, when we're... Th- in this case, I'm 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 slightly split-minded. I mean, I, I'm with Professor Mike that engagement's more important than the embassy. Embassy does actually bring with it some kind of uh, de facto recognition. Uh, you you can't really open an embassy and say actually we don't recognise your regime. So I think that we're not quite at that point yet. Uh, also, important is to listen to listen to the Afghan voices. The one point of pressure which I think we haven't really mentioned at the moment is Pakistan. Pakistan is, albeit at kind of one remove, was the sponsor of the 2021 debacle uh, through their ISI organisation, and we do have points of pressure through there. It's probably the only country that the Taliban listen to, and even then, it's fairly fitful. But we do have points of pressure through Pakistan. And my other thought, really, is actually how do we how do we make this Taliban ban on taking education with women a complete waste of time? Uh, and one of the things I'm very keen to try and see if we can do, and it started to some extent, is see whether we can't have a mass kind of distance learning program for mm-hmm. Afghan women and children. We, we use the power of the internet. We use the power we've got in the West to get our ideas over, to keep the education going, to get to a point where actually you might then just persuade the Taliban it's a waste of time and you know maybe hold out the carrot of an embassy, because it's a two-way street. You know, it means if we put an embassy back in, back in place there, however low level, a chargé d'affaires or whatever, a UK interest section in a, in a neutral embassy, uh, that brings with it some promises of aid for the future, to say, if you behave differently in a way that the rest of the world, and it's interesting a number of Islamic countries who have lined up and gone to the Taliban and say, this is not Islamic, they might then be persuaded to change their mind. They might not. They have a particular ideolo- ideological view of, of Islam. But
0: there, there are points of pressure, which I don't think we've fully explored yet. And that, that idea of distance learning is really interesting. Of course, the Taliban have control over the internet, but you talk about possible carrots that, that, that might enable us to, to keep that open. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I
2: think that's what we're we're, we're looking to do. Dialogue is just trying to open people's minds. You know, nobody's talking about overthrowing the Taliban. You know, nobody's sensible. So that you know, let's 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 put that all to complete to one side. I mean, don't underestimate. You know, the, the extent to which people do have access to internet. People are communicating in and out of Afghanistan, and the Taliban do not have the level of sophistication that, say, the Chinese government does to control what's going on. Nor do they necessarily want it. That's the odd thing. You do get the odd report coming through of even quite senior Taliban. Of our leaders say you know i go home every night uh, and my, my daughters berate me for what we're doing there are elements in there who i think are persuadable but you know this is a, a process and it's going to take a long time to get there
0: uh, let's get a final thought from mike and uh, uh, mike let me put this in, in the harshest possible way does the uk have any interest in doing things to create a better life for afghans right now or is it interest only in whether the country poses us and our allies a security risk
5: it's a broader thing than that um i mean afghanistan doesn't pose us a direct security risk and it never did it was only ever indirect but i mean as simon was saying earlier on there are bigger things at stake now i mean we're preoccupied with the ukraine war but look what's happening in africa look look what's happening in asia the autocracies and the dictatorships are on the march you know, we thought in 1991 that the world was turning towards the democracies, as it were, inevitably and irrevocably. That wasn't true. And it's gone the other way. And so the democracies are now very much on the back foot. And so what happens in Afghanistan for the future is also part of that bigger task that we've got to take on of defending our own democratic interests in freedom. And, you know, I'm always struck by the, you know, the famous words of, of Pericles. Um, and he said freedom is is the uh, freedom is the sure possession of those alone who have the courage to defend it. And our attitude to Afghanistan now is one of the tests of our courage to
0: defend the freedoms that we used to take for granted. Mike, thank you very much. Nazifa Hakpal and Colonel Simon Diggins, thank you also very much for your time and thoughts. That is all for now. SITREP is back next Thursday. Professor Michael Clark will be reunited with his usual partner in crime, Kate Chabot, back from her holidays. Don't forget, you can listen online at any time and subscribe to the podcast. Just search for BFBS SITREP. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.